right, let's open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Hey, Ryan. Hello. The text that we have for that we have for tonight, the passage that we are considering is Christ's message to a suffering church. It's his words to the church in Smyrna. And you have to wonder even like how many people alive today who profess to be Christian would even think that the message that is contained here in our text for tonight would be something that the church today needs to hear. How many would even recognize that a church can, as a body of people, be collectively suffering? Uh, Revelation was written to these seven specific churches listed in chapter 2 and 3, but also to the church in every age, dealing with timeless truths that the body of Christ experiences in different capacities uh, across all throughout history. And that would include the things said to the church in Smyrna. So much of what passes off as Christianity in our culture today, though, is a pursuit of a present glory. It's a life of peace and pleasure and good circumstances always. It's a theology of glory that opposes suffering and hardship and trial. It's all about being blessed in tangible categories and that alone. It's the whole, like, have your best life now crowd, the name it and claim it people, prosperity gospel messages that seem to dominate the Christian landscape. And even and it's even what many who aren't a part of the church think that Christianity is that sort of a thing. It's what many people who even aren't part of the church, who even aren't associated with those your best life now, name it and claim it groups, think the church is all about. And this mindset has created a nominal, apathetic, anemic, and weak church in the West, as well as leaving behind it a trail of disillusioned ex-church members who didn't get what they signed up for. And these people sadly were not one to Christ with the power of the gospel, but they ended up being one to a version of Christianity that promises things that God doesn't guarantee in this life. And when it didn't come to fruition, they felt betrayed and victimized the very things that the church said the world was doing to them. And they were never really one to Christ. They were one to this idea of Christianity that isn't true Christianity. Uh, but it shouldn't be surprising to us, friends, when the body of Christ is suffering and going through trials. In John 16, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about the reason as to why he taught in parables and how he, why he didn't just plainly reveal truths to them, even though he would soon. And he tells them this in verse 33. And what he says in John 16, 33, is that he spoke in parables so that we would have peace in Christ, because in the world we will have trouble. It's simply part of humanity in a fallen world even. Job 14.1 affirms this. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes affirms this. The whole of Scripture affirms this. But the Christian has something the world does not, and that is Christ himself on our side, who is able to give us peace in these matters, who is able to give us hope and joy even through suffering and trials. And so this is Jesus' message for a suffering church, the church in Smyrna. So let's read the passage. We'll pray and ask God's blessing as we study it. So the reading of God's word, beginning at verse 8 in chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold... The devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this message that you have given to your church, and we pray for understanding. And we are grateful to know that you are sovereign and Lord over all things, that nothing happens outside of your control, outside of the counsel of your will. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us this evening to grow and to be conformed to Christ, to cast off the old self, to cast off sin, and to put on Christ, which is made after the image of God in true righteousness and holiness. Help us, Lord, um, to trust you and to love you. If there be people here who aren't saved, God, we pray that you would work salvation, for you are the only one who could do that. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So Smyrna is the second city we have mentioned here in this uh, second chapter. It's about 50 miles north of Ephesus, if you were looking on a map. And like Ephesus, it's an important harbor city. It's not as big as Ephesus was, not as influential early on in Christianity as Ephesus was, but it's an important city nevertheless. Today, it's located in modern-day Turkey, and it goes by the name of Izmar. So you can actually visit where Smyrna was, and there's still people who are living there today. Back in the Apostle John's time, it was known as the crown or the pride of Asia, and it was famous for being extremely loyal to Rome. It had temples for Zeus, Apollos, Asclepius, Aphrodite, and Sibyl. Or Sibyl. It's, it's reported to have been the birthplace of Homer, you know, who's the author of the Iliad and the Odyssey. It had the largest theater of any Roman or Greek city. And basically, any religion or any system of thought that was opposed to Greek culture was not going to be popular here. And further, on top of all those those things that tell us about the, the richness of this Greek heritage, it had a really large Jewish population. And this was turned, it turned out to be the exact kind of atmosphere that would prove to be hostile towards Christianity. If you remember, under the Roman Empire, uh, under the rule of Domitian, he had, this emperor had started to institute the deification of the emperor, and he started to demand that the emperors be worshipped. And emperor, emperor worship was mandatory for every citizen, except for there was a caveat that allowed the Jews to not actually worship them like the surrounding nations had to. More on that in a moment, um, as we saw in the text, because there's an issue with the Jews here in Smyrna as well. But this ended up having Smyrna become a place of more extreme persecution, even in comparison to some of the surrounding Greek states. Pastor Denny Burke notes that suffering, persecution, and martyrdom have indeed been the calling of the church, Lord of the Church of the Lord Jesus among the nations throughout her entire history. Martyrdom simply means that you're killed for your beliefs. And that was certainly happening to Christians at this time, specifically, or maybe we say especially, to Christians in Smyrna. You may have even heard of this phrase before, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's kind of an interesting phrase. Think about it. It's actually a paraphrase of something that the church father Tertullian wrote in 197 AD. But the point is that one would think that the killing of Christians would slow down the growth of the church. Like if you're opposed to Christianity and you want to stop the spread of it, and it came to you, well, how do I stop the spread of this? Well, I'm going to start killing Christians. You would think that would slow the spread of it. But it had the exact opposite effect. The killing of Christians, the martyrdom of believers, ended up growing Christ's kingdom. It ended up being a contributing factor to the advancement of Christ's kingdom. It was the seed 
meaning that it becomes a means of the church's growth and, and its spread even. And one of the most famous and well-known stories of martyrdom happens to be about a man who was ministering here in Smyrna, who died about 60 years after the apocalypse of Jesus Christ was given to John. It was a man named Polycarp. Have any of you heard of Polycarp before? Polycarp was, in fact, a student or a disciple of the Apostle John. And you can read about him in a book. You can look up online called The Apostolic Fathers. I'm sure there's online copies of available. Or you could go to YouTube and watch a full-length movie on Polycarp. It came out in 2015, so it's not super cheesy. It's done pretty well. Um, but it, you know, it explains his life and his, the way that he died for the Lord. Now, the issue of martyrdom, though, it's not just an issue for the church 2,000 years ago. It's an issue for the church today in many places as well. It's estimated that 65% of all those who have been martyred for the faith, so ever, since the time of Jesus's ascension, uh, 65% of all those who have been martyred for the faith have happened since the dawn of the 20th century. And in 2002, so 20 years ago, it was estimated that 100 to 150 million Christians were being martyred every year. And there are still people being killed simply for not bowing the knee to um, there are still people killed for, for bowing the knee to Jesus and refusing to worship some other God or a government that's acting like a God. And there's a correlation to Revelation 20 here as well, which is that famous passage about the millennium. And I'll mention that in a little bit as well, too. But let's consider verse 8 to, to start off, really. This is how Jesus begins his instruction to the church. And by the way, mind you, I don't know if you noticed this or if you picked up on it, but there's no critique for this church. Uh, like, this, like the section to the church in Philadelphia, there's no correction or there's no criticism offered to the congregation here. But look at how it begins. There is once again a calling back to, a remembering of the sovereign and glorious Son of God who this message is from. We read that this is the words of the first and the last. It's a title that's used of Yahweh elsewhere in Scripture and the Son specifically a few times in Revelation. Jesus is the protos and the eschatos. He's the first and the last, which is the basis for our comfort, friends. There's no equal to our God. There is none like him that could, who can claim to be before everything and beyond everything. Everything else in existence depends upon him since he is the first. He is eternal and he is sovereign. He is Lord over all of history and he is the final word in all things. It is his counsel that will come to pass. It is his purposes that are being accomplished. He is the first and the last. All of those kinds of things are caught up in that title. And this flies right in the face of the emperor worship that is being forced upon the people at this time. You can imagine what it must have been like, I would think. You know, Rome is demanding worship and the deification of its emperor. It's wanting to assert that it is first. And Jesus is like, nope, I'm the first. Even more than that, I'm the last as well, too. This emperor will come and go. He's not a real god. There will be another one that will claim deity, but he'll be gone, too. Jesus outlasts them. And friends, we here who are Christians, we are part of Christ's kingdom, of which there will be no end. There's no end to Christ's kingdom. Is the Roman Empire standing today? Not. Right? It, it maybe exists in a typology in, in, in other places, but it, it is no longer standing here, but Christ's kingdom will never end. And Jesus knows what we are going through right now. He knows what we're going through in any, in any age. He's not caught off guard or he's not without power. 
This is even part of his will, and it's not bad, though it is difficult for the church. But because he is the first and the last, he provides a secure foundation for the church when they go through difficult times. But at the same time as being the first and the last, meaning that he is God, we read that he is also the one who died and came to life. He's referencing his humanity, especially the reality that he's the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God, whose act of submission there on the cross leads to the redemption of his people. Jesus has authority over life and death, as well, over, as, well as over all creation in general. He experienced a death. Now think about this. He experienced a death that none of us ever will, that no human ever will be, to be clear. Christians won't experience the death that Christ died because his death took away the wrath of God that we deserve. He bore the full judgment of Yahweh against sin and lawlessness so that we won't have to. And because he took our condemnation, we receive no condemnation from God. But I say that he experienced a death that no human ever will because even those people who do take upon themselves the wrath of God, the people who never believe and trust in Christ for forgiveness and end up suffering in eternity for hell, they at the most are only ever paying for their own rebellion, which began with Adam in the fall. But Jesus took upon himself the penalty of a multitude, not just one person. He took upon himself the penalty that all of those who were chosen in him before the foundation of the world merit and deserve. He took upon himself the wrath that all the elect deserve. And for all that will ever populate heaven, he bore it all upon himself. Not just the wrath that one person would feel, but the wrath of all those who would believe. And so Jesus, he, he took on this, this death that nobody else ever will experience something even close to it. Though I can imagine that eternity in hell is no fun at all. Uh, no one would ever want it. But what Jesus experienced is even greater than what any one person will ever experience in the eternity of hell. And think about how comforting this is. And and good news, actually, for those people that are suffering, for people who are facing martyrdom, their Lord and God had also died. Died at the hands of those who didn't like what he taught and what he believed. He walked that road of persecution, but he didn't stay dead. He came to life, as the text reminds us. All those who are with him through faith have the promise that they too will not be hurt by the second death as well. And we'll read, we'll get to more of that when we get to the end of, uh, of our passage. But for a church that is facing death, to know that their Lord and Savior died, but didn't stay dead and came back to life, carries with it the promise that they too will not be forever dead, that they too will have new life in Christ. And so this reality has served Christians throughout the centuries to face persecution and martyrdom with power from on high. In Polycarp's example, he was said to have a countenance of joy at the time of his death. His murder, really. Could you imagine that? You're about to be murdered. You're about to be killed. And you have a countenance of joy. There are countless stories of Christians singing psalms while they're being torched, while they're being burned at a stake. How could that be? if you didn't know that if after death for you would also come life. There's a modern example even of this, and we can even think of more biblical examples, right? Stephen, when he was being stoned, he prayed for his enemies right at the very end, just like Jesus did as well when he was being uh, persecuted. He prays for the peace of his persecutors. 
modern day example, um, Christianity Today records the account of a missionary family from Australia to India. And this happened in 1999. So I'm just going to read this for you. But this is what it says here in Christianity Today. It says, every year for the past two decades, veteran missionary Graham Staines of Australia conducted five-day open-air, quote, jungle camps in villages of the eastern Indian state of Orissa, teaching, preaching, and singing to Santal tribal members. After one such meeting on January 23rd in Mano, Mano Harper, a village 600 miles southeast of New Delhi, the 58-year-old Staines and his two sons, 10-year-old Phillips, and seven-year-old Timothy were murdered. They had been sleeping in a vehicle parked outside a local church when militant Hindus, alleged from the Bajrang doll group, doused the vehicle with gasoline and set it afire. And then this is a quote here. It says, My husband and sons tried to get out of the burning vehicle but were stopped by the attackers, Stain's wife, Gladys recounts. As the flames engulfed the vehicle, the mob danced and some shouted, Just as has been done, the Christians have been cremated in Hindu fashion. The mob kept would-be rescuers at bay for more than an hour until making sure the missionary and his sons had died. Stain, secretary of the Evangelical Missionary Society, an independent missionary organization based in Brisbane, had been operating a hospital clinic for lepers in India for 34 years. Two days after, after the murders, the lepers dug the graves for the family while Gladys Staines consoled them as they wept. And then Gladys says, God has given me peace, and I've never questioned his wisdom in allowing this tragedy. These people are my people, and I hope to stay here. And Gladys did stay there. Uh, her and her 13-year-old daughter stayed there after her husband and two sons were murdered. And that sort of response, I think, can only come from one who understands that death is not the end. Death for us here in this life is the door that leads to our eternal abode. And for the Christian, we also have the promise of a glorified, risen body, an eternity of joy with our risen Savior to look forward to. That information sustains us and it encourages us in the face of real danger, of, of, of death in many instances even, even in the face of martyrdom. And so we read then in verse 9 that Jesus, the one who was the first and the last, the one who died and then came to life, that he knows their tribulation and their poverty, but they are rich, it says. It's similar to how the instruction to the church of Ephesus went, but there is Jesus knowing their works. Here he says he knows their tribulation and their poverty, and then also he knows the slander that has come against them. Three challenges are before this congregation, and they're all related. The tribulation or the affliction is in reference to the suffering they're having to endure. Again, in some sense, just part of the Christian life, Remember what Jesus said in John 15? If you look back in your Bible to John, in John 15, 18 to 20, Jesus says, Jesus says here, He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Bless you. And for those of Smyrna, that hatred from the world, it turned violent. And Christians have hatred from the world in every society and culture that they're in at some level. But here in Smyrna, that hatred turned violent. And it was leading to intense persecution and martyrdom. And it even came in the form of economic hardship. Uh, the Christians in Smyrna were poor. 
they were marked by poverty. And this very well could be a reference, I think, to them not taking the mark of the beast. We'll save that for later when we get to Revelation 13. But we'll hear it again in Revelation 20, which I'll read at the end of uh, this evening. But if you remember from Revelation 13, the mark of the beast prevented people from buying and selling. So it seems to, to make sense, at least, especially when you consider the type of persecution that this church is facing. They're poor. They're, they, they've been, they have been subjected to economic hardship simply for being Christian. They have been hit in their bodies, and they've been hit in their wallets. But note, even though they were poor, and by the way, it could happen to us here as well, too. You know, Christians may be ostracized and, and not able to to buy or to sell, that is a that is a possibility, uh, even in a society like ours. But nevertheless, even though they're poor, they're actually better off than their persecutors. In parentheses, we read that they are rich. Not monetarily, of course, because that would contradict their poverty, but something better than being monetarily rich. Something that can't be taken. Something that is that moth and rust can't destroy. They are spiritually rich. They have what commentator Ian Paul says is the treasure of the kingdom, which is theirs in Jesus, in line with their inversion of human values in God's economy. In other words, rich in good works and obedience, in other words, and in contrast to their wealthier fellow city dwellers. They are rich in faith, which reminds us of what James 2 says. James 2, 5, this is just right before Revelation. Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? So the saints in Smyrna are suffering. They are in poverty. But despite these things, they are rich, rich in Christ, having every blessing in the heavenly places and having the promise of life after death, should they trust and hold on to Christ, who was in fact holding them in the first place. And here is the reason as to why those who are suffering, in part from a human standpoint at least, the reason why they're having to endure this suffering is because of the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are in fact a synagogue of Satan. That's how verse 9 ends. G.K. Beale points out that the mention of the slander or blasphemy suggests that Jews, jealous of the inroads Christianity was making, may have informed on the Christians to the Roman authorities. Not the not the Jewish people, nationally speaking, of course. That can't be the case because much of the early church was Jewish. But it's, it's in reference to those, I mean, John was a Jew, right? He was Jewish himself. But this is in reference to those who remained under the system of the Old Covenant and rejected Jesus as the Messiah. It's ironic, of course, because the Old Covenant is done away with. It actually is a, a covenant that's not in, in action or is not active any longer. But these are people who didn't have eyes to see and ears to hear. This is the same kind of religious people who ended up sending Christ Jesus to the cross and didn't see what is plain to us, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the covenant promises that Israel's history was littered with these shadows and types that pointed to Jesus, who he is and what he would do. And notice what John says about them. They says that they are Jews. He said they say they are Jews and they are not. The implication, of course, then, is that a true Jew is one who would believe and trust in Christ. It's reminiscent of what's said in Romans 2, Romans 2, 28-29. There the Apostle Paul writes, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, and not by the letter. 
His praise is not from man, but from God. That reminds us of what we were even going over on Sunday morning, right, with John 3. And it's the work of the Spirit that um, causes the new birth. The flesh begets flesh. The Spirit begets Spirit. And isn't the church here in Smyrna being praised by God? They are. They are Jews inwardly, having their hearts circumcised. And anyone that is a Christian living in any age, that applies to them as well. We went over this distinction in Ephesians a couple years back as well. Some of you might remember that, Jonathan, maybe. But these people, blinded by false religion, just because he's so old and he's been around here for so long, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, these people, blinded by false religion, under a yoke of bondage that they can't see, they are in fact a synagogue of Satan or a church of Satan even though they profess to worship Yahweh. They don't actually worship Yahweh. And that's evident by their rejection of Jesus and their persecution of those who follow him. This should remind us of what Jesus said to the officers in, in Pharisees in John 8. They were people who were claiming to be sons of Abraham, Jews in other words, and Jesus rebukes them and says that if they were Abraham's sons, they would be rejoicing at his day. But they were not, and so they were showing him that they were actually children of their real father, who was the devil, not Abraham's sons. And so these Jews were offering up. They were slandering Christians and then turning them over to the Roman officials. They are people who professed to have worshipped the same God, Yahweh, as the Christians of Smyrna, and yet they are the ones who are attacking the church. And make no mistake, brothers and sisters, this is what happens often when the church is persecuted by the government in any culture. Those who profess to worship the Lamb, but are in fact in bed with the beast, as it were, they end up being the ones who turn over the saints to the church or to the to the beast. And you're going to see John use that exact same kind of language throughout this letter as well. You see, at this time period, the Jews had this worked out deal with Rome, and we see this evident even in the way that Christ was crucified. Right? He had to be turned over to the Roman officials. Remember the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees; they couldn't kill Jesus himself themselves. They had to hand him over to the Roman officials. There was this deal worked out among the two people groups. And Christianity, for the first part of the century, enjoyed a degree of protection under the umbrella of Judaism, which was an acceptable religion in Rome. The Jews actually were not forced to worship Caesar as God, but they were allowed to offer sacrifices in honor of the emperors or rulers and not as God. God's God himself. The Rome had worked out a way to keep them submitted unto themselves, giving them a way out of actually worshiping the emperor as God. And so Christianity thrived under that because Christianity was initially believed to be like a subsect of Judaism. You can see why, I think. It's, it's the fulfillment, really, of Judaism. But it didn't take very long for Rome to figure out that Christianity was different than Judaism. And as Christianity began to grow, people were seen as converting from Judaism to Christianity. Think of the Apostle Paul, for example, and his, his conversion on the road to Damascus. Would they call it Judaism back then? You know, I don't know if they would call it Judaism back then. Uh, the faith of, you know, their fathers, I would think, would be some, probably something more along those lines. Um, I don't know. It probably, if I had to guess, the term Judaism probably came about after Christianity developed. Because then it was a way to say, hey, this is different than us. We're, we're saying we're worshiping Yahweh, but we're not worshiping like Judaism is, which so is still. Yeah. Was their deal worked out because of like Jewish riots and stuff? So they were like. I think so. If you remember even the, or the crucifixion, like Pilate was worried about having another riot and everything. And so I, it seems to be that's the case. 
Um, so anyways, as more and more converts to Christianity started to happen, it became clear that Christianity and Judaism were distinct. And since it wasn't gaining the Jews any favor with the state, they just started turning Christians over to the Romans. It's shocking that it happened this way, but we really shouldn't be surprised. And Jesus even encouraged the church in Smyrna this way, that they can anticipate suffering. But the suffering is not the last word. Look at verse 10. He says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. But be fruitful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So there's lots going on here. First, we have that familiar refrain we need to hear as Christ people, do not be afraid. He has said a lot throughout Scripture. The church does not need to fear the trials that are coming to her. And why is that? It's because our lives and our destiny are all in the hands of the one who has overcome death by death, Jesus himself. Jesus defeated the devil. He's overcome the world, and in him is grace sufficient to resist our flesh, the world, and the devil. The devil is the church's enemy, of course, the enemy of Christ, Christ being the head of the church. And so here we read that it is the devil is about to throw some of them into prison. It's not that like the devil is necessarily going to possess a Roman authority or something like that. But the point being is that the actions of the Jews and the Romans in Smyrna are in step with the Christian's enemy. Whereas the devil and those who are his children essentially mean to harm Christ and the church, they, they really can't, not forever. And so we are to fear not, even though the suffering is bound to happen. In this case, being put in prison and even being put to death, we see even in all this that Jesus is still sovereign. This testing that they will go through is known by the Lord. He's revealed it to them before, beforehand, and he limits it even. It's for 10 days that they will have tribulation. Their trial is brief. G.K. Beale here says that this serves as a further impetus for them to remain faithful, knowing that time of testing is ultimately in his hands and will soon be over. And there's no reason for us to think of this being a literal 10 day, days here either. It's implying a short time, but I think there's more to it actually than that as well. He's wanting to establish that the Christians are true Israel or true Jews, if we said it differently. And so this is an allusion really back to Daniel and the persecution of the church in his time. If you remember from, from that book, Daniel and his three friends lived in a hostile environment, and they were tested for 10 days. They refused to participate in acts of idolatry ordered by the king by not eating his meat and drinking his wine. And the Christians here in Smyrna are, in other words, are, they're, they're supposed to be like Daniel and reject idolatry, even if it meant their death. Remember what Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael said before going into the fire pit? Nebuchadnezzar is threatening to throw them into a pit of fire. And this is how they respond in chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. They say, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You see, they were being faithful unto death. And Jesus here is reminding the church that this is the kind of attitude his people are to have in these situations. Having this disposition results in obtaining the crown of life. There's a scripture that speaks about this crown in a number of different passages even, and a number of different ways. In other, in other letters, in other books, it's called the crown of righteousness, crown of glory, crown of gold, uh, crown of rejoicing or of incorruption. 
and each Denny Burke notes that in some way it draws our attention to the blessings of salvation that are ours in Christ Jesus. Whatever this crown goes by, it's generally meaning the same thing, the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. And the crown is none other than eternal life at its core. It is victory over the second death. And don't be confused here because the crown isn't something that we earn by overcoming the persecution that's coming towards us. It's not something that we earn, properly speaking. It's not a reward for faithfulness. But these things are related in a codependent way, meaning that if a person is faithful unto death, then it's because the crown of life, life is theirs already. Christ has purchased them with his blood, his work of substitution on the cross, atoning for their sin and accrediting to them his righteousness at their time of regeneration is what, able, is what enables a person to be faithful unto death. We aren't supposed to plumb our own strength in times of trial, friends, we look to the strength of Christ and what he supplies. And since all that is true, he gives us the crown of life. Those who reject him, perhaps even going back to Judaism, as we see much ink being spilled in scripture over that matter, well, they don't get the crown of life. And it's because they never had it. You know, they went out from us because they were never of us, as First John says. It's what James also says in one twelve or who James talks about obtaining this crown. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God promised to those who love him. Those who love him, who love Jesus, are blessed and receive the crown of life. They are blessed in Christ. And we evidence that by remaining faithful, faithful to him, no matter what is before us, even all the way to the point of death. And when we do that again, it's because Christ has applied his work of salvation unto us. Father, Son, and Spirit has applied that to us, Spirit specifically. And so and at the end, we obtain that crown of life. But not everyone does, because not everyone stays. Some people depart. Some people forsake their faith and deny their profession. And certainly, a, a trial like this, martyrdom is a hard trial. We would wish it on no one, of course, but it's nevertheless a test that some Christian saints endure and pass by the grace he supplies. Some people won't pass that test. Some people will renounce Christ and turn on their fellow brothers and sisters, but it's not something that Christians really have to fear or worry about. We know that Christ will sustain us. He'll carry us through. So if you are here tonight and you are trusting Christ and you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't know if I could stand persecution. Well, just know you can't, but the grace of Christ in you can, and he'll, he'll preserve you through it. And then we have that familiar refrain, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I mentioned a comment on this briefly last week about hearing, so let me point out briefly this time, it's what the Spirit says to the churches. But this is a message from the Son of God, isn't it? But this is what the Spirit says to the churches. So the point is that there's a unity and inseparable operations as it is referred to within the Godhead. It's a message from the Son, but it's also the Spirit saying this as well too. The Spirit, the Son, the Father, they're not at odds with each other. They're, they have one will, and they seek to accomplish it and be glorified through the acts of the church even. And then the Word says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. I mentioned earlier that this is a correlation to Revelation 20, and so let's turn there now, and we'll close with these comments. So turn to Revelation 20 if you're in Revelation 2. Remember I said at the start of the series in, that this series in Revelation, that the book itself is not a linear book. It's not like 
the Gospels, where it takes you from the birth of Jesus all the way to the death of Jesus. It's not like, it's not like Judges, which takes you from the entrance into, the, into Canaan all the way to you know, Samson's uh, failures in Canaan, right, leading up to the time before they would get a king. It's not linear like that. It, it, it describes things in a reoccurring manner, spanning from start to finish and restarting again. It's called um, <clears throat> recapitulation. And note what is said here in Revelation, being aware of the fact that this famous passage, that this is a famous passage on the millennium, beginning at verse 4. It says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and for those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who is part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God, and Christ shall reign with him a thousand years. You see the connection there to what we read in chapter 2, I hope. John sees a vision in heaven in which people who are beheaded, people who were martyred in other words, people who didn't receive the mark of the beast, they are living and reigning with Christ during the millennium, during the time span in between Jesus' first and second coming. They were killed for their belief, but like Jesus, death hasn't defeated them. They lived, praise the Lord, and more, they reigned with Christ. They received the crown of life. They were faithful unto death, but death wasn't the end because the second death has no power over them. The very things that are said to the church of Smyrna. We won't get much into that now for the sake of time. But the point is that when we as Christians die in this age, we live after that death. The second death, the existence in what the Bible calls Hades and the eventual lake of fires, it's not for us. And so these events happened in Smyrna 2,000 years ago. They are similar to the events that happened to the church in every year in this time span between Jesus' first and second coming sometimes called the millennium, like we just read in the passage in Revelation 20. And no matter where we are in the course of history, Jesus is with his church. He knows what we're going through, and he's going through it with us and before us even. But there is grace and strength for us in the person of Christ, and so by grace and faith we look to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you have given to us a mighty Savior in your beloved Son. He is the one who died and came to life again. And we know as well that because of his righteousness and the grace that is supplied to us, that even if we were to die, that we would still live again. And not because of something that we deserve, but because our sins have been completely forgiven. And the penalty that our sins deserve was paid for by Jesus there on the cross. And so we thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for the work that you have done for us so that we might not have to taste the second death. And when there does come trial before us, we pray for grace from you to sustain us through it, that you might be exalted. We hope that we don't ever have to suffer in this sort of way, Lord. We're, we don't want to bring such things upon ourselves, knowing how weak and unstable we are. But nevertheless, if it is your will for something like that to happen, let our confidence be fully in you. You are the one who is the first and the last. There is none mightier than you. And so we pray that you would 
Help us to trust you and to love you. We need you always, and we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. All right, any questions, comments? Okay.